What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Two-two All right, welcome back, everyone, to another Baseball America podcast. This is your host, Jeff Ponce, and we are rolling through our top 10 prospects in each system, uh, going through that entire series. I am here today uh, joined by Kyle Glazer, who did the Seattle Mariners list. Uh, The Mariners, for the first time ever, are our number one farm system in baseball They're also the owners of another dubious distinction, and that is the longest playoff drought in North American sports uh, currently. It almost came to an end last year, Kyle, but it looks like they're on the precipice of a golden era potentially. So let's talk a little bit about the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, I mean, folks in the Emerald City have been waiting a very, very long time. The Mariners were last in the postseason in 2001. That was the 116-win team. And they've had a couple of years where they were close or close-ish. Uh, they've had a couple 88, 86, 87-win seasons. But last year, winning 90 games, that was the first time they'd done that since uh, 2003. They had back-to-back 93-win seasons. So the Mariners hadn't had a season like this um, in, in 18 years. And now everything is looking really, really bright moving forward. It's not like that was kind of the peak season and now you're wondering how they're going to sustain it. Uh, As you mentioned, they are the number one team in our organization talent rankings. And having that number one farm system is a really, really, really good indicator of future success. Since 2005, 16 of the 17 teams that have had the number one farm system in the BA organization talent rankings made the playoffs within two years of that designation. And the only team that took longer than two years, the 2011 Royals made back-to-back world series in years three and four after they were named baseball's best farm system. So uh, recent history tells us that the longest playoff drought in North American professional sports will be over within the next two years. And that's been true of teams that have had 69 wins at the time these rankings came out. That's been true of teams that were already playoff teams, having that number one farm system reinforced and extended their competitive window. So uh, for the Mariners, being a 90-win team, having a number one farm system, all signs point to this playoff drought ending within the next two years. At least that's what recent history tells us. Yeah, and I was going to say, it's it's quite unusual that you see a team um, that has a number one farm system when the previous season they were a 90-win club. And I think this is what's really interesting about it. In terms of impact on that 90-win club, not many players here from the top 30 even debuted. Um, there's still you know, a pipeline that could extend a few years down the road. Um, so it's a, it's a strong foundational system, which kind of leads to my first uh, talking point here and the first question I kind of wanted to ask you is you know, how would you describe this system? When we go through system rankings, I think one of the things that we focus on heavily and debate internally is what are the strengths and weaknesses of a system? Is it top heavy versus a deep system, say like a Pittsburgh? So how do you, how do you um, sort of uh, list Seattle's system within sort of those two ranges of what are the strengths and weaknesses and is it top heavy or is it more of a depth system? It definitely skews more toward top heavy on the spectrum. Now there is some depth here. This is not a system like the Orioles where it's just super, super concentrated at the top. And then the depth is really questionable, but this also isn't a, an organization that's anywhere near as deep as say the pirates or even the rays. It's kind of in the middle there, but there's a nice balance in terms of positional strengths and weaknesses. This is a system that's very, very strong in pitching and outfielders. And we saw that you mentioned last year's 90 win team. Part of what's so encouraging is they won 90 games, getting not a lot of contributions from their graduates. Jared Kalanick went up, really, really struggled, got better as the year went on, but there was definitely some growing pains. Cal Raleigh, same deal, a lot of growing pains. Logan Gilbert uh, was up and down like a lot of rookie pitchers are, but overall had a pretty solid season, but it's not like he was the ace of the staff. By ERA, he was the fourth best starter in this rotation. So you have that group of guys, and again, Kellenick an outfielder, Gilbert a pitcher, and there's more outfielders and pitchers on the way. Uh, The system does not have a ton in terms of 
infielders, really at any position on the diamond. Novi Marte is obviously a stud shortstop, but you know that's why they're probably going to need to address their holes at second and third base in free agency. But anytime you have kind of this standout group of pitchers and outfielders who can really, really do damage and make a difference to go with some of the talent they have in the majors, Mitch Hanniger is still around. Kyle Lewis, obviously you hope comes back healthy from another knee injury and Kellen, it got better as the year went on. Um, that's where the strength of the system is positionally. And like I said, it's more top heavy than super deep, but there is depth here. And given you're already a 90 win team, it's not like you need 10, 20 of these guys to come up and make a direct impact for you in the majors. If just your top four or five do, you're in really, really good shape. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you see when you look even beyond the top 10, but certainly I think the top 10 um, does a good job of showcasing this is they've done well in the draft. They've done fairly well in trades. They've also done well in the international market. Um, the top player in their system was one of their big international signees, I believe back in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, in, in Julio Rodriguez. Um, you know, he's obviously shot up to, you know, the top of the top 100, not all the way up to the top, but, you know, they're in that top three that was heavily debated as we put out our top 100. Um, he's one of the best prospects in the game, still incredibly young. Um, showcased what he could do in the upper levels of the minors a little bit last year and also um, in the Olympics. So how good can Julio Rodriguez be, I guess, is what my question is. I've said this on Seattle radio shows. I've said it in the chats. I've said it anywhere and everywhere. He can be one of the faces of baseball. You think about the guys who are quote unquote on the billboard, uh, Fernando Tatis, Ronald Acuna Jr., Juan Soto, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, all these guys who are kind of the faces of the game. It would not be a surprise if five, 10 years from now, we're looking up and Julio Rodriguez is one of the guys on that billboard, so to speak. Anything and everything you could want from a talent perspective is there. He's got massive power that, funny thing is, he still hasn't fully tapped into. But one of the things I think is really underrated about him is how good of a pure hitter he is. He's a career 331 hitter in the minor leagues. That includes his time up to double A. He just hit over 400 in the Olympics, facing a lot of guys who are older and have major league experience. And look, he's a bigger guy. His swing occasionally gets too big, like a lot of young power hitters, but you know, he just makes adjustments so quickly within at bats. He's a pretty adept two strike hitter, stays on tough pitches. The strikeout rate isn't particularly high, you know, swings at the right pitches, handles off speed stuff, recognizes everything out of the pitcher's hand. I mean, it's just a really, really good hitter who, oh, by the way, also has massive monstrous raw power that he's still learning to tap into. And oh, by the way, he's an above average runner that when he's focused plays pretty good defense in right field and will make the occasional highlight reel play for you. There's really not a knock on his game. And, and then, oh, by the way, you add in just this infectious personality that makes him both a, a true team leader. There's nothing false about it. His teammates love him. He takes charge in a clubhouse. And then he's just so engaging with you know, fans, media, everyone. He's got star power written all over him, both from a personality standpoint and a talent standpoint. And even if things maybe stall out a little bit, maybe he does struggle to adjust. Again, this is still someone who doesn't have a lot of time above the class A levels. Maybe he doesn't tap into that power fully. I mean, people still see almost a worst case scenario is Eloy Jimenez, but a better defender. So if your worst case scenario is 260 with 25, 30 home runs, you're still an all-star. I mean, that just tells you the talent level this guy has. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the other things that's been underrated about him a little bit, as you said, was the running ability, but just was the overall athleticism, especially from the time he sort of came over here and first came stateside, debuted. Um, you know, there was some question as to how the body would mature, even in, you know, the last few years sort of coming up to this point that we're at now. And he's really checked all those boxes and I think exceeded him and, you know, put in the effort to, you know, maintain a high level of, you know, fitness and, and just uh, sort of keep it together. Because I think early on you were getting sort of Nelson Cruz comps from, you know, what long term he could be. And I don't think that's necessarily the case any longer. But that said, what are some areas that you think he does need to sort of work on uh, things that may stop him from debuting really early in the major leagues uh, in the upcoming season? 
I don't know if it's something that would necessarily stop him from debuting. It's just uh, things to work on. You mentioned how well he moves and defensively. That really stood out for me when I was out in Florida last year for a week covering the Olympic qualifiers. And it's a very quick first step in right field. And he ranges particularly well going at 45 degree angles, going back over his shoulder to the right field corner and back over his shoulder into the right center gap. Um, that was really what stood out to me. And, and again, it was consistent above average run times. He flashed you a plus run time. So the physical ability is all there on defense. The one thing that comes up is he loses focus on D occasionally. It doesn't happen in big games. For example, he was locked in defensively during those Olympic qualifiers, during the Olympic games. But, you know, sometimes a, a Wednesday in the middle of August, you know, the season wears on you. And you'll see him make some avoidable mistakes, throwing to the wrong base, getting a late jump maybe just because he wasn't entirely focused. So there's times where you see the physical ability for him to be a plus defender, but it plays down. So that's why we kind of split the difference and called him an above average defender because consistency is a big part of being a true plus defender. So that's one thing, but some of that will probably just come with maturity and experience. And again, there are times where like a lot of big, young, strong power hitters, his swing occasionally gets too big. And we even saw that in the futures game a little bit. He did not perform well in that game, had a lot of swings and misses. But on the whole, when you look at the big picture, Again, he's shown the ability to have that direct bat path, you know, short, simple approach and really make adjustments. And we saw that in the Olympics, there were a couple times facing some guys who have some big league time who can really spot the ball where they want, not just rear back and fire and it goes where it goes, where he was fooled. But then you saw him quickly adjust within and at bat. And even if it wasn't within that at bat, it was the next at bat, just that mental aspect of the game is there. So, you know, those are two things to maybe watch, but I think, given more time and experience and maturity, they won't really be significant issues. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the age factor is something that we have to keep in mind too, with the Olympics, even the Dominican, you know, winter league, I think at, you know, the end of 2020, um, he's seen a lot of exposure to higher level pitching and guys who have had, you know, major league experience and Wiley veterans. So that certainly uh, portends to success in the future. Um, let's move on a little bit further here. We'll wait on maybe Noel V. Marte uh, talk till after the break. But I wanted to ask a little bit about number two here, George Kirby. I had the opportunity to, to speak with his pitching coach on my podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, both in the minor leagues and also in college. Uh, but beyond Kirby, there's a really talented group of pitchers that could move fairly quickly. Some are right on the, cu- the cusp of um, the major leagues, some have already debuted in Matt Brash, but there's a, a, a group of four here, a quartet uh, that kind of rounds out the top six with Noel V. Marte and Julio Rodriguez. Um, but uh, George Kirby, Matt Brash, Brandon Williamson, and Emerson Hancock, how do these pitchers stack up against each other? And uh, talk to me a little bit about each. Yeah, I mean, this is the strength of the Mariner system. Again, Julio Rodriguez is the big name guy. He's the guy on the marquee. But uh, when you talk to evaluators around the game, the first thing they say when they talk about the Mariner system is they just talk about their pitching endlessly and how many good arms they have. And these four are really at the top of the list. Kirby was the clear-cut number two prospect in this system. Um, there was no debate from any quarter. Uh, Mariners officials, uh, opposing evaluators, he's really just continued to trend in the right direction. And in every single way, uh, he was a control artist whose stuff was fine. It's not like he was throwing 88 in college, but everything just has continued to tick up. That fastball that was 91, 94 in college is now 95, 99 with explosive late life. And he's dotting it wherever he wants. I mean, it's true plus plus fastball command in both sides of the plate. And then you look at the secondaries as he's added power. Those have come along as well. The sliders added power and movement. It's become a wipeout pitch. The curveballs added some more depth and bite and power. That's become an above average offering. And the changeup actually, just the action on it is is pretty dang good too. That's the one pitch. His control isn't great. So it's more just an average pitch. But I mean, you look at just the athleticism, the control, the way the stuff is trending it's kind of that, as I wrote in the scouting report, that rare mix of now power and precision that makes someone a front of the rotation starter, whether it's a number one or number two, there's just a lot to like here. Everything is trending in the right direction. And he was not only the clear cut top of this pitching group, but really the clear cut number two prospect in the system and and a clear cut top three pitching prospect in all of baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the thing with him is it's the command 
it's the power. And then, you know, as you said, the way the pitches move, there's some really interesting movement traits with, with Kirby on all of his pitches. Um, particularly with the fastball, he has some analytical traits that really sort of fall into some of those benchmarks. I wrote about it in my best pitches in the top 100 article. Um, really flat vertical approach angle with that power and the ability to land it probably better than just about any pitcher. In, in terms of fastball command, maybe any pitcher that's in the minor leagues, certainly within our top 100. I mean, his strike rate on his fastball is ridiculous. It's near 80%. So that kind of gives you an idea just statistically of the benchmarks that he's already set in fourth in the minors, which I think is pretty remarkable. And as you said, I think there's still some room for growth with the secondaries, particularly that changeup. It has really nice movement. It looks great out of the hand. It can fool hitters. It's just a matter of getting it in the zone a little bit more and the results could really tick up. It actually, I believe, had the highest whiff rate of any pitch that he threw. So it kind of goes to show you, this is a guy with command of his fastball, which is a really good foundational skill to have, plus some secondaries that are still coming along, have some power, as you, as you mentioned, and uh, could be adding command in the coming years as well as he learns to pitch and refine it a little bit more. So really exciting development there. Speaking of exciting developments, I think Matt Brash might have been the most exciting development um, from a Mariners perspective within this system this year, they acquired him from the Padres. And he's turned out not only to be an explosive pen arm, which I think we, we thought, but he has an opportunity to potentially start as well. I think when you speak to some of the folks that are within the organization or that have the Mariners, you know, for coverage, they say the same, which I think is surprising when you actually see the operation from Brash, but the stuff is great. So talk to me a little bit about Brash. There are people high-level decision-makers within the Mariner system who will tell you that Matt Brash belongs above Noelvi Marte in the rankings. Now, that's not a majority view. It's not a consensus view by any means, but that view does exist. We had them three and four, Marte ahead, but there's a lot of reason to be very, very excited about Matt Brash. So I think we have to address uh, kind of the biggest thing, as you alluded to, Look, the delivery is is not pretty. It very much looks like a reliever delivery. It's hard to find other guys in the majors who have had that delivery and been successful and sustained it. So kind of off first glance, if you just kind of pull up some video and watch a couple, you know, an inning or two, you might just say, yeah, no, you know, it, it's a great arm. It's great stuff, but he's probably going to end up in the bullpen. But one of the things that's important to notice with him is he holds his stuff. He holds his command deep into outings. You know, I remember a few years ago, just giving one example, Domingo Herman. I remember watching him when he was with Scranton at AAA in the Yankees system a game in Durham. And he's out there. It's max effort. It's a head whack. And I'm sitting around all the scouts who are like, yeah, wow, it's a crazy head whack. You know, this is totally reliever. While not really paying attention to the fact that he's actually holding 95 into the seventh inning, the breaking stuff's not losing any of its bite. He's commanding everything still, and he's holding strong deep into games. And, you know, we've seen guys with unconventional deliveries last as stars in the majors. It's more about can you hold your stuff? Can you hold your command? And Max Scherzer is also the archetype of that. And I think more people who watched Brash on a consistent basis, like you said, uh, people who had Mariners organization coverage, uh, people within the Mariners system, they have a little more faith that he can stay as a starter. Now, he does have a history of, of shoulder issues. Uh, when the Mariners acquired him, he was dealing with some shoulder tenderness. So he has to stay healthy. He has to show he can do this again. It was only 97 innings, but Again, I, when you look at it's a power fastball, it's arguably the best slider in the minor leagues, and, and some would argue one of the best sliders in all of professional baseball. He's got a knuckle curve that's coming along, a changeup that's coming along. I mean, you see the pitch mix to be a starter. He's showing you he can hold the stuff and the command deep into games. It's more about can he stay healthy, and that is a little bit of an open question with that delivery and how much effort there is involved. But I think people who are saying right now, oh, he's a 100% reliever, it's a little premature to say that. I think you can say it probably ends up that way, but the split is probably closer to 60-40 reliever versus starter. I mean, there's a chance. It's probably a better chance than I think people give him credit for. Absolutely. Yeah. And I had heard the same from, you know, contacts within the organization, those that have been around him. So that tracks. He's a really interesting uh, pitcher. I know I had his slider listed as a curveball in my best pitches article. Uh, that's because that's what the systems pick it up as. And I know that I've gotten confirmation that the internal systems with Seattle ping it that way as well. 
Uh, there's a whole long explanation for that. I did a podcast on it. Go listen to that. Let's move on to another arm that I really, really like. Somebody that was within our top 100. I believe he ranked 81st overall in the most recent update. Um, Brandon Williamson, who was actually a college teammate at TCU of Nick Wadoto, who I also spoke with earlier this week. Um, he shares the fact that he is an unusual slot from a left-handed starter. Um, a really interesting pitcher. One of the better fastballs that I, I went through in my, my top pitches in the top 100 article. Talk to me a little bit about Williamson, because he's also had a bit of a rapid rise uh, this season in the rankings. Yeah, so I think we have to talk about Brandon Williamson in conjunction with Emerson Hancock. And the reason we have to do that is when the Mariners ranking came out, uh, initially a lot of people on social media and I got this on Seattle radio shows were like, how, you know, where, why is Hancock below Williamson? Why is Hancock below Williamson? What's wrong with Hancock? And it was more about how good Williamson has been. And again, this was a, a pretty consensus view. Um, there is no one inside the Mariners organization or outside the Mariners organization that felt that Williamson belonged below Hancock and myself watching a lot of these guys as well. Um, it was actually pretty straightforward that, yeah, Brandon Williamson is, is the guy here. You know, he's 6'6", 90, 94, can get up to 97. But you talked about the fastball playing as well as it does. It's got some deception in his delivery. It's got late life coming out of that six foot six extension he gets. Um, and the pitch just really, really, really plays up. You know, I had it as a plus fastball. And you can argue that grades a little light with how it actually plays. Then he backs that up with this, you know, high arcing top to bottom curveball. It's, you know, tight spin, sharp bite. I mean, those are two really, really good pitches to start with. The slider and changeup are, are solid. You know, the control is, is pretty good for a guy as tall and lanky as he is. If anything, he probably gets too much to the plate sometimes. I mean, you look at the stuff, you look at the body, you look at how the stuff plays. And one of the things that came up in talking to the Mariners is he still has room to get better. He led the Mariners system in strikeouts last year, by the way. It wasn't Kirby, it wasn't Brash, it was this guy. And he did that despite right now his pitch sequencing kind of he can be a little stubborn sometimes, wants to throw a certain pitch in a certain situation when it's maybe not the best spot for it. So he's already doing this and he actually still has room to get better and improve his pitch sequencing. And this is a guy who has a chance to be a really good starter in the major leagues. And again, just another great arm the Mariners have in their system and, and really a clear cut top 100 guy. It really wasn't much of a debate that he belonged in the top 100 and that he belonged above Emerson Hancock. Yeah, and I think, you know, the thing that's really remarkable with him is the amount of bats that he misses for the strike rate that he has uh, on his fastball. So he's one of the few guys that had, I think had above a 60% strike rate on his fastball um, and had a, a, a strike, excuse me, a, a whiff rate that was around 36%. So only guy that had a higher whiff rate in their fastball was D.L. Hall. And he didn't pitch nearly as much as Brandon Williamson did. But it's all of the secondaries, the slider, the curveball, the changeup. They're all really good pitches. Um, and he's a really smart guy, knows what he's doing analytically, and has cleaned up a lot from what you saw at TCU. I mean, he's become a much better tr a strike thrower and just, you know, executor in terms of, you know, a, a pitcher, being able to get out there, get outs in a variety of different ways. And, you know, it's a little deceptive from the sense that if you look at the radar gun, he doesn't light it up, but he's doing a lot of other really, really good things. And Williamson, you know, definitely is a, a top 100 guy, no question about that. But let's dig in a little bit more on Emerson Hancock, um, you know, coming into the, the 2020 draft cycle, uh, he was considered, you know, potentially the number one overall prospect in the draft. Um, didn't go that way, ends up falling uh, a little bit in the top 10 to Seattle. Seattle scoops him up. The results haven't been what you would expect uh, of a player, particularly a college pitcher, that had you know, that sort of track record. Talk to me a little bit about what's, I guess, gone wrong with, with Hancock and then why there might be room for optimism. So I think we need to keep it in perspective somewhat. This was a guy here in his first full season, his first professional season, I should say, who did get up to double A, had a 2.6 ERA, kept his hits per nine under six. So he did pitch well. The production was there. The performance was there. At the same time, it was only 44 and two-thirds innings. Uh, he went on the injured list with shoulder tenderness twice, um, which is always concerning. And the Mariners have talked about trying to find out exactly what was wrong. Um, they've come out and said he's fine now, but they've said that before and it wasn't fine. So there's a lot of questions about the health of his shoulder. That's first and foremost. 
And the other thing is, and again, I, I think we need to give him credit for performing. Again, what got to double A, kept runs off the board. But one of the things that came up is in college, he was known as just, you know, having this really polished delivery and an easy strike thrower. And we didn't really see that. Uh, and figuring out how much of that was maybe his shoulder just wasn't right. That's a big question moving into 2022. The delivery was, was not great. You know, people talk about Matt Brash's delivery. Hancock's was pretty effortful to the point that a lot of evaluators were concerned about how he was going to hold up physically much more so than Matt Brash. Really, really inconsistent arm action. There's power there. He was still showing you mid nineties, but it was much more about, you know, velocity and power than, than tempo and ease of operation you know, the fastball didn't really miss many bats over the plate. Uh, again, his strikeouts per nine, it was, it was less than a strikeout per inning. So it was just a kind of a tough look where you're seeing a guy, it's, it's an effortful delivery with a lot of injury risk and concern, did not miss that many bats. None of the stuff was really, you know, bat missing stuff. The slider really lacked power on it. Again, the fastball had power, but didn't play well over the plate. And the slider was coming in 79, 80. Again, there's a lot more questions about Emerson Hancock. And I think, you know, I remember Mariners fans were almost apoplectic that he wasn't in the top 100. And just looking at the reviews we got this year, um, there really wasn't much support for him to be in the top 100. And then you add in the injury risk. But again, I think it'll be interesting to see if his shoulder is fully healthy next year and maybe we start to see some of the things we saw in college because if that's the case okay his shoulder is just bothering him that's why we saw what we saw in 2021 then he'll be right back in the top 100 I think this is going to be one of the more intriguing storylines for the Mariners next season but right now just based off what we saw it's a guy you stick in the bullpen you hope the fastball plays up a little bit the slider adds some power and maybe he can just blow through an inning or two for you because um, just what he showed health and stuff wise, it, it was a tough look for evaluators to say, yeah, this guy's going to remain a starter against major league hitters. Yeah. And I will say one of the things that he does have uh, playing in, in his favor, if he does end up in the bullpen is the fact that, you know, he's going to be able to um, be successful in offhanded matchups against left-handed hitters because he does have a fairly good changeup and he's had, you know, shown the ability to land that pitch for a strike consistently dating back to college. So, um, you know, there's definitely uh, a lot to follow there and it's going to be one of the top storylines as we move forward here into the 2022 season before we move forward into the second half of the Mariners top 10 here let's take a quick break we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. All right, we are back uh, for the second half of the Seattle Mariners Top 10 podcast. I'm sitting down uh, with Kyle Glazer, who did the list. Kyle, we just went through the top six. We talked a little bit about this group of pitchers. 
haven't touched a ton on Noel V. Marte. I wanted to maybe group him in um, with sort of this back-end list of four players, but talk to me a little bit about Marte before we finish off the top 10, because he was uh, ranked here at number three. Just a physical specimen at this point. When he signed, he was kind of this you know longer, lankier dude, and I saw him a bunch with Modesto this past season, and he walks out of the dugout. It's big. It's broad-shouldered, and as a result, it was really, really easy power, just hitting rockets to all fields, and he showed you the ability to recognize pitches, stay in the strike zone. I mean, this is someone who absolutely has a chance to be an impactful offensive force. One of the things with him was he did struggle with consistency. You know, he'd have days where he's locked in, spitting on pitches and and driving hittable offerings, and others where you'd see him just chasing and looking completely lost. His approach kind of wavered a little bit, and a lot of that is just really, really young guy, 19 years old, making his full season debut. It's a long year. So I think just firming that up is probably the, the main thing offensively, but there's a pretty strong consensus that he's going to be a, an impactful offensive player. The questions are on defense. Again, he's a bigger guy. He made a lot of errors last year, and my looks at him defensively were not great, um, particularly throwing. Um, It was really, really inconsistent. Arm slot, it was kind of awkward at times. Um, I'd heard a lot about his plus arm, and he'd flash it occasionally. More often than not, I actually saw some throws that were well below that. So I think there's a lot of questions about where he's going to end up defensively, shortstop or third. Based on my looks, I would say it's probably going to be more third base, but there's a chance he stays at short, just about getting more consistent, improving his footwork. What came up a lot with evaluators is, you know, sometimes it's a focus thing. So we see that both, uh, really both sides of the ball with him. If he's able to put in the work and kind of dial in on his shortstop play and really, really dedicate himself to his footwork, his actions, his arm slot, he has a chance to stay at short. It's not like he's guaranteed to move, but that's some of what has to happen. Thing is, even if he moves to third base, you're looking at above average hitter with plus power and maybe more. Um, That's going to play anywhere and potentially be an all-star in any position. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's one of the more exciting prospects uh, just in the game in general. And certainly, you know, if Julio uh, Rodriguez graduates this year, it gives them sort of that, you know, top of the system hitter um, that could potentially blossom into a top, you know, five prospect or whatever. Um, Next name I wanted to move on here. And I think this is sort of probably the, the, the ending of the top heavy group here for Seattle. Um, But Harry Ford at number seven, um, you know, he's drafted this year at a high school in the first round. Um, he presents sort of an interesting question long-term because he is a tremendous athlete. He's also a catcher. Do you think that he sticks at catcher long-term? Does the organization believe that he sticks at catcher long-term or is there an opportunity for sort of like a super utility type, you know, the second coming of Craig Biggio? The answer is yes, he can stay at catcher long-term. The answer is yes, the Mariners believe he can stay at catcher long-term. And the answer is also yes, that that could be a path for him. Not that I'm going to say he's going to be a Hall of Famer. Um, Harry Ford gives you a lot of options. So there are some guys who are catchers who bounce around to play the infield because they can't really catch. There are other guys who are catchers who bounce around and play the infield because they're just such good athletes, they can do it. And he's more in the latter camp. He's a no-doubt catcher in the Mariners' eyes. He's athletic. He's got the arm strength. Uh, Some of the receiving and blocking was actually better than even the Mariners thought it would be once they kind of got him into camp. So he's got a chance to stay behind the plate there and and give them options, whatever they want to do. So he can stay there and really just figuring out what kind of hitter he becomes. Um, There is a little bit of a split there. The Mariners are higher on him as a hitter than opposing scouts were based off their initial looks in the ACL. But really just the athleticism and the defense – there's a lot of faith within the Mariners organization that he can stay behind the plate. Yeah. And he's, you know, sort of that modern type of baseball athlete that we're seeing more and more behind the plate, the ability to move around uh, and maintain he's, you know, and especially strong kid too. I remember during some of the draft stuff, some of the the workout videos, things like that, that you were seeing um, unusual strength for sort of a a smaller stature kind of an athlete Uh, going on to number eight, This is a really interesting one. It's a third round pick uh, from a few years back, back in 2019 at a Lehigh smaller school guy who's popped a little bit. That's Levi Stout 
um, right-handed pitcher. You have him ranked here at number eight. I want to talk to you a little bit about him before we talk about the tough decisions that you had at nine and 10. Yeah, so this was really the end of the surefire top 10 guys. Levi Stout was a clear-cut top 10. Uh, These top eight prospects, there's no question they would be in the top 10. And frankly, that they were the top eight. And I would say the top seven guys were very clearly the top seven. And then Levi Stout was very clearly number eight of this group, but, but a surefire top 10 guy. Had Tommy John surgery, came back stronger, throwing harder. It's it's the same story we've seen time and time again. And look, he's just a really good pitcher. I know sometimes that's a cliche a little bit, but the stuff is all good. It's an easy, efficient delivery. The walks were a little higher than you might expect for his delivery, but some of that's just first year back from Tommy John surgery, shaking off the rust a little bit. There's nothing in his arsenal that maybe you put a plus grade on but everything's at least average and most of it's kind of above average. And if you've got three or four above average pitches and consistently throw strikes, that's a really good number four, number five type starter. And that's valuable. You need those guys to win. If you have three horses at the front of your rotation and your four and five starters are awful and you're starting two fifths of your games at a disadvantage, that's not a recipe for success. You need those guys to win. You need those guys to succeed and be a playoff team. And uh, Levi Stout has a chance to be that guy for Mariners, just that really steady, consistent, solid pitcher who throws, you know, four pitches for strikes and is efficient and gets you in and out with five or six solid innings every time out. Yeah. And, you know, one of the more interesting pitchers uh, in this system, like you said, and, you know, the final, as you said, of the, uh, the surefire Mariners top 10 prospects. So now that we're moving on from the surefire guys, I know you had some tough decisions, some tough calls at nine and 10. There were four players in the mix. Uh, those that ended up eventually ranking nine and 10 left-hander Adam Mako, uh, number 10 outfielder, Gabriel Gonzalez, but also in the mix. Number 11, Andres Munez, uh, right-handed reliever who we've seen in the major leagues before. And then number 12, uh, Cape breakout from a couple years ago. I got to watch that is Zach Deloach, outfielder. Talk to me a little bit about the decision between uh, Mako, Gonzalez, Munoz, and Deloach. Yeah, it was these four for the final two spots. And truthfully, if this was a – this is Kyle Glazer's list, who Kyle Glazer personally, based on his own looks and experience and opinions, would, would stack him up. Munoz and Deloach would have been 9 and 10 for me. Both these guys have shown at higher levels. There's real ability there. There's real tools there. But ultimately, that's not what our lists are at Baseball America. We're reporters, and we're reporting you know, how the industry sees things, taking into account some data. And our own looks certainly shape some things. But ultimately, just in the course of discussions with evaluators uh, inside the Mariners organization and outside, ultimately, Mako and Gonzalez, the two younger guys in this group, got the nod. Mako's a really interesting story, kind of self-taught pitcher. I was watching YouTube videos of Justin Verlander and David Price to teach himself how to pitch moved to Ireland, played for a pretty good youth team there, then moved to Canada and became one of the top pitchers uh, in the country and was a, a draft pick of the Mariners a few years ago. Didn't get on the mound a whole lot, had some shoulder issues, which is a, a thing that happened to a lot of Mariners pitching prospects. And it's one thing I, I want to talk about a little later in the podcast, but his curveball is a holy expletive curveball. It's tight. It's sharp. It sweeps. It drops. It's, it's an unreal left-handed curveball. Uh, it's a real, real outpitching weapon for him. His velocity has climbed rapidly the more experience he's gotten. And he was someone that when the Mariners were engaged with trade discussions with teams uh, throughout last year, after that initial top group of, yeah, we're not trading Kirby. Yeah, we're not trading Brash. When, when it started making its way down to kind of the second tier asks, Mako's name came up as much as and really more than any other player in the Mariners organization. He got asked about a lot in trades and it just is kind of a testament to how much projection this guy still has left. He's very, very young. He still has a lot of room to grow right now. He only really shows you two or three good innings and then he'll completely fall apart. Some of that's inexperience and, and just need to become a more consistent strike thrower and more consistent with his stuff. But Talking about a young lefty with a fastball that's starting to tick up into the mid to high 90s with a a plus-plus curveball that is just an absolutely ridiculous pitch. It's a good place to start. And then Gabriel Gonzalez, uh, we've talked about the international signing success the Mariners have had. You look at Julio Rodriguez, you look at Noelvi Marte. This is another player that has a chance to be a big-time international signee for them. It was only the DSL last year, uh, but he was one of the DSL's top performers 
he's a little bit more of a question mark because he's just really physically mature already. And we've seen guys who are really physically mature just take advantage of bad competition in the DSL. I think about a guy like Malcolm Nunez with the Cardinals a few years ago. And that was my personal hesitation. But again, just talking to everyone out there, he led the league in extra base hits. And the thing is, he's got some surprisingly twitchy athleticism. Again, he's 5'11". It's, it's a bigger, rounder, more muscular build. But he's actually a pretty good athlete. Um, the Marcelo Zuna comps come up a lot. Elliot Ramos, who's in the giant system, that comp comes up a lot. So again, bigger, rounder guy, but real thump in the bat. And um, you know, if he comes stateside next year and, and shows what people think he has in him, this is someone who could fly up the list next year. Let me ask a little bit then. So you preferred Munoz at 11 uh, and Deloach at 12. Why? What were the reasons for your personal opinion why you would have had them above uh, those two? Because you're projecting a ton with these guys. As much as Adam Mako, you can really, really dream on it. You are talking about a young lefty with shoulder issues. His performance was okay in Modesto. It wasn't exceptional. It was an ERA, um, you know, in the mid fours, there's a lot of walks there. And Gonzalez, you're just talking about someone who's so, so, so far away. And just that concern about, okay, how much of this was him just being more physically mature than his peers? Uh, again, the Malcolm Nunes example, you know, really rang true for me. You know, Thondras Munoz, I mean, you're talking about a guy who is in the majors, is still very, very young, has come back from Tommy John surgery and is still pumping 102, 103. And the Mariners saw fit to give him an extension. And this is a really, really special arm and someone that'll play a big role in the Mariners bullpen right away. And then with Zach Deloach, he's just a solid player. You know, he's someone that nothing he does is going to wow you, but he does something very, very important. He recognizes pitches and he makes contact. He gets on base a ton. Again, it's not super sexy. It's not going to wow you, but the comp that comes up a lot is Seth Smith. And while people might be like, yeah, whatever. Well, Seth Smith had a 11 year big league career and on the whole was an above average offensive performer by ops plus over the course of that career started on some solid teams. So I think with Munoz and Deloach, you're looking at two guys who you feel pretty good about what will be average ish or better players in the major leagues Whereas Macklin Gonzalez, you're, you're shooting the moon a little bit more and just the, the risk factors involved are such that, you know, me personally, um, give me the guys who have proven it at higher levels and, and are going to be major league contributors. But I understand the people who prefer the upside of Macklin Gonzalez and ultimately the industry tilted that way. And that's why they're ranked as they are. So now that we've been through the top group, I think this is probably a question um, that everyone wants to ask. What are some of the sleepers that still lie within you know, this, this next back half of the top 30, maybe even outside of the top 30? Who are some of the players that could potentially draw a jump into the top 10 uh, over the next 12 months? Yeah, so as we talked about, the system, it's mostly about the guys they have at the top, but there is some depth here. Uh, the first guy I want to highlight is Alberto Rodriguez. He was the outfielder they acquired for Taiwan Walker at the 2020 trade deadline. He got out off to a really, really slow start Modesto last year. He, he came back from the coronavirus shutdown, just not in the best shape, took some time to clean up his body in spring training, slow first month, but as his body firmed up and he kind of got back into game shape, he took off uh, after May hit. He was actually one of the best hitters in the minor leagues by almost every measure. Um, Left-handed hitter, just a really, really advanced feel for the strike zone and a really, really strong ability to just kind of consistently get the bat on the ball. He's been too passive at times, but he started taking a more aggressive approach and all of a sudden just driving balls to all fields. Uh, you look at some of his exit velocities and kind of the profile Someone made the point that you stack him up against George Valera, who we have in the top 100, and it doesn't look that different. Again, Valera has done it at higher levels, and that's a big thing, and we need to see if Rodriguez can continue this. This was mostly at low A last year with a little bit of time at high A, but you just kind of look at the, the package and the body and the ability. There's something here, just the ability to consistently drive balls, stay in the strike zone, you know, get to some power, and, and he's a pretty solid defender too. So definitely keep an eye on Alberto Rodriguez. The Mariners added him to the 40-man after the season, so that just shows you how much they think of him. And then the other guy who's probably the biggest wild card in this system is Jonathan Classe. 
Uh, he was someone that the Mariners signed for only 35 grand during the 2018 international signing period uh, and really emerged as a potential steal very, very quickly. Had a really, really strong pro debut in the DSL, but he's just been hurt. He's had a lot of hamstring and quad strains over the last couple of years, only played in 14 games last year. But this guy, when he's on the field, can fly. I mean, he's a nearly 80-grade runner, and he's starting to get stronger. He's a switch hitter. or He began switch hitting last season, I should say. He's starting to get stronger. He's starting to impact the ball more. He's starting to, to show you some power and ability to kind of drive the baseball. I mean, you can dream on a, a power-speed combo here. He just has to stay on the field. Again, it's been years, uh, multiple years of injuries now. And um, that, that's the biggest question with him. But if he stays on the field, this is someone that can rise very, very quickly in the system next year. And I know he's a favorite of Mariners fans on social media. You know, anytime <laughs> there's any Class A content that drops, it seems like they're all over it. So I'm happy that you addressed Class A. The one other guy I want to mention um, was a draft pick this year out of Texas uh, A&M. I was a huge fan in college. I know he was a little bit older. He was a senior sign. But that's Bryce Miller. I know he was up to 100. Uh, that video sort of came out. But the fastball, even beyond the velocity, is just really, really special. He's, you know, all those sort of characteristics that we're looking for in modern fastballs. It's a low release height. It's incredibly efficient. It's high spin. It has the power and velocity. And it plays in a really flat vertical approach angle. So um, he may end up being, you know, because he's a little bit older, heavily on one pitch. He may end up only being a reliever, but he's a really interesting power relief arm. And I think that's um, sort of par for the course with this current uh, iteration of, of the Mariners system where they have a ton of guys that throw really hard and they've done a really good job of training velocity as well. That said, kudos to the Mariners. How could this go wrong? They seem like they have the perfect, perfect setup. They won 90 games. They're on the cusp of the playoffs. Um, there's teams in the division that I think have, you know, probably backed up a little bit and they have this tremendous system with a ton of top talent, pitching talent and positional talent. How could this go wrong? Kyle? Man, you're talking like a true Mariners fan. How is this going to go wrong? Um, I actually want to start on the positive and how this can go right and why I think it will go right. So I want to go back to 2011. Uh, my first job out of college, I was a sports writer for the Victorville Daily Press in the high desert region of Southern California. And I was covering high school sports during the school year and the high desert Mavericks during the summer. And the Mavericks were the Mariners high affiliate at the time. And you'll remember the Mariners had top 10 farm systems in 2012 and 2013, including the number two farm system in 2013. And as I was a beat writer for this team, you know, watching them, but also watching player movement and how the Mariners were assigning guys, you know, part of the reason that went so wrong, and in my mind, the single reason they weren't able to translate that number two farm system into a consistent winner, they rushed guys so, 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 so badly. We saw it with Mike Zanino uh, skipping Danny Holtzen and Taiwan Walker over. And really the, the prime example to me was Nick Franklin. Um, Nick Franklin was uh, a standout prospect on that high desert Mavericks team at the time, uh, the year I was there, the first year in 2011. And I mean, I was watching him every single day, watching this team every single day. And when they bumped into double A, he was not ready offensively, defensively, um, just where he was in his development, but they pushed him up anyway. And, you know, is that the reason he didn't pan out? I don't think there's ever one singular reason, but it certainly didn't help. And the Mariners just had this really, really, really bad history of, of rushing guys. And then even the guys that did get to the majors, they had this history of bailing on them too soon. Cattell Marte, Chris Taylor, Brad Miller, they traded all those guys away at 25 or younger. So I think in the past, we saw a Mariners organization that rushed guys through the minors and was way too quick to bail on guys once they got to the majors just because they strode a little bit. I think what the Mariners have done really well now uh, under Andy McKay, new farm director, is they've really let guys prove to them that they're ready to go up to the next level. They're not rushing them. They're not saying, oh, well, you know, you showed us this one thing. We're going we're gonna to push you up. They're making guys prove, I have mastered this level and I am ready for the next challenge. And I think that's one reason to be very, very optimistic that the Mariners will get the most from this talent base when they maybe didn't previously do so with other highly ranked farm systems. 
And I think, you know, you've talked again about they've done a really good job just helping guys get better, particularly on the pitching side, adding velocity, adding sharpness to the breaking stuff. Talk about guys like LJ Newsom and Reggie McLean, who I was watching throw 86, 87 in A ball. And they're now throwing Newsom. I remember watching him strike out Fernando Tatis Jr. swing over a 94 mile an hour fastball in the majors. And Reggie McLean was pumping 95, 96 out of the bullpen in the majors. I never saw that coming. So um, I, I think the Mariners. Just the way their farm system, their philosophies, their organization, um, their development is all in a really good place. And that's why I'm optimistic they will take advantage of this and get back to the playoffs. The area where it could go wrong, and I would say this is a yellow flag. It is not a red flag. A lot of their pitchers have had shoulder issues that have put them on the injured list. George Kirby was on the IL with shoulder tenderness last year. Emerson Hancock went on the IL twice with shoulder issues. Matt Brash had shoulder issues in the Padres system. Adam Macko, we talked about, had shoulder issues. Now, the Mariners have said they were just being cautious, especially coming off of not having a season in 2020, not wanting to push guys. And that's definitely the right way to go about it. This was a really weird year and you don't want to push guys past the point where it's, it's safe or productive, but it is something to watch when four of your top five pitching prospects have missed time due to shoulder issues or shoulder injuries. It's something to watch. So I would call it a yellow flag, not a red flag, but that would be something where if those become more serious and these guys struggle to really hold up over larger workloads, that's where maybe something could go sideways. But I'll say this, even if that happens, the Mariners have a pretty good rotation right now with, you know, they signed Robbie Ray. You have Marco Gonzalez. You have Chris Flex, and that was a great signing out of Asia. Logan Gilbert showed some good things last year. So it's not like they're banking on these guys to be what puts them over the top pitching-wise. Even if only one or two of them pan out, they'll be fine. So on the whole, I'm optimistic, uh, much more so than some Mariners fans seem to be based on the social media reaction I got to uh, my story about how being a, a top farm system generally results in, in a postseason with the next couple of years. But um, again, I, I think they're doing a lot of things right and they've got a great talent base. They've got a, a 91 team in the majors and things are certainly lining up really, really well for this franchise. We will uh, focus on the positive. And I think there's a lot to be positive about Mariner Maybe more so than there's been in 20 plus years. We'll see a year from now if uh, that comes fully to fruition right away or not. Kyle, thanks for joining me today. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in. We appreciate your support as always. And we'll be back with another Farm System podcast shortly. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.